Welcome to part three of the facts about the vax on the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting podcast. I'm Dr. Elliot Berlin, and I'm here with our co-host Maria Bulin and our guest pediatricians, Dr. Carly Wilbur and Dr. Jay Gordon, continuing our discussion about childhood vaccines. We talked about polio a little bit, if we can get a little bit deeper into polio. Um, the wild polio is a virus. Polio is a virus. Yes. Typically, a, a mild case of polio would give you fever, headache, vomiting. Um, as it progresses to a more serious case, um, limb pain, muscle weakness, and uh, paralysis of the muscles, whether it's a leg um, wasting of the muscles in that leg. These kids used to end up in an iron lung, which is an old world uh, version of a respirator uh, because of the paralysis of the respiratory muscles. And um, today, are there still cases of paralytic polio here? In the United States, no. Since when? Uh, 1985. Some people say 79, some say 85. There was, there the was one. The CDC reports one case. I saw one thing reported one case in, two, in 2005. An Amish traveler who went overseas. Canada, I think it was. No right? vaccines. They had no vaccines. Right. So the disease still exists. It exists, but, but we're on the verge of worldwide eradication. And again, because of vaccines. Because of vaccines. This, the, the virus 100%. didn't go away. There is an argument that I don't agree with. That we that for a long time we classified every single paralytic disease as polio, and a lot of viruses made their way to the central nervous system. I don't really believe that. I think that that polio was a, a distinct set of viruses. It caused uh, tremendous suffering and 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 death, and that the vaccine is a good enough vaccine to have been around and to stay around. Whether or not your healthy American child needs that vaccine is up for d debate. There are some people who say that prior to September 11th, 2001, there was some thought about removing the polio vaccine from the routine schedule. Uh, I don't know that as I, I don't know if that's true. But after September after September 11th, where people were worried that terrorists would drop polio on our heads, which would damage about, you know, hurt, more chance of hurting your dog than you, um, no vaccine will ever be removed from the schedule. Smallpox has been removed. 25 years after smallpox was gone, we removed it. But as far as you know, no known significant side effects from the polio vaccine? Well, that's an interesting question. There's a, a, a disease entity called PANDAS, also called PANS, it's a sudden central nervous system tick disorder, ticks, uh, obsessive compulsive disease. Uh, it happens. We used to think it happened only after strep infections. Isn't that what the S is for? Yeah. Pediatric and that's why they, they changed it now to, to PANS, uh, and the S now stands for syndrome, I think. Um, I'm not sure if the S ever stood for strep. I think it's, it's pediatric but, oh, autoimmune neurodeve neurodevelopmental associated with with strep. streptococcus. Yeah. Now it now anyway. This is not to get too complicated. Let's but, not. But but there are children who, after infections and after other exposures, develop sudden OCD and tick syndromes. A small, a couple of publications, couple of a couple of publications, not well done research, but publications in reputable journals showed that after the polio vaccine, some kids who had PANDAS had reactivation. These are the kind of things that I read that, that give me pause, because I have a, an email box with, a, with scanners that toss case reports at me every day, a case of a child who got this vaccine and this happened, or a, a, group, a, a, a group like the, the Journal of Neurology article about multiple sclerosis and so on. And they, you know, they, they make me, they cause my discussions with parents to be fuller. Is there no, are there no side effects in the polio vaccine? Like I said, I don't do anything that doesn't have side effects. Wouldn't that be an argument for vaccinating earlier? So if a child had already been diagnosed with pandas and then they get the polio vaccine, it could reactivate. So why not get them immune before they ever have a chance to get but pandas? The, the question is how early and, and, and how do we clump vaccines and what proof do we have that the safest way to do it is, is six at a time? I mean, the challenge to me is, do you have any proof that, that delaying vaccines is safer? No, I don't claim to. I don't claim to. I have 
some experience, what I consider to be some, some logic or common sense that it's better not to do things six at a time, whether it's giving antibiotics or doing surgery or giving vaccines six at a time. But there is no proof that it's, that it's dangerous to give six vaccines at a time, but there's no proof that it's the safest way to do it. And if we can't prove that it's the safest way to do it, shouldn't we have a discussion amongst doctors and patients about how we'd like to do it? How are you most comfortable? Because if a parent is not comfortable after the hepatitis B vaccine or after the six vaccines at six weeks of age, as, as I said, I really think we run some risk of losing them. Of, of having them be much more resistant than they otherwise would have been. I have an unusual practice. I mean, it's not like, it's not like most people's practice. A lot of people come to see me because they are very much vaccine hesitant. They're not anti-vaccine. They come in and they say very specifically to me, we want to, we certainly want to give him vaccines. We travel a lot. We just don't want to do all six of them when he's two months old. Is there another way to do it? My answer is yes. And that yes answer, immediately turns me and a few other doctors like me into outcasts. Suddenly we're anti-vaccine. No, we're not anti-vaccine. We are merely saying that this is a medical intervention worthy of discussion, that considering it to be etched in stone, because that vaccine schedule, as you know, has changed since you've been uh, a, a, a resident, since you've been a pediatrician. HPV vaccine didn't exist when I started. And we've added vaccines, and as you know, we're going to be adding more vaccines in the near future. Um, we've withdrawn some vaccines and then replaced them. The measles vaccine has had, I don't know how many different versions. Uh, the polio vaccine. Paul Offit, Paul Offit, who is the doctor vaccine. Paul Offit's first book was about the, the, uh, the polio vaccine disaster. You know, we make mistakes. So parents have a right to know all of these things. What about varicella? Oh, good one. Thank you very much. Finally, one I can say I had as a kid. <laughs> you had chicken pox. <laughs> I had chicken pox. You were unvaccinated. I was <laughs> there was no vaccine. Right. Even then. Yes. No. no. When did the varicella vaccine come to be and why? Um, because I had it. Did you? I was it? there. We all had it. Everybody I was there. It was, in the, so, it was invented for kids. Chicken pox is a, is a, again, you could call it a benign childhood illness, okay? It's not. I mean, any virus can cause everything from encephalitis to death. Every virus can. And because the outbreaks of chickenpox were so huge, they were just they just it went through the whole first grade. Um, there were you know there were there were high profile complications. But I don't recall but the real, being but the worried real about problem, it. The real problem it. were the kids who are on chemotherapy or high dose steroids for asthma, who were therefore immunocompromised. And this was not a rare phenomenon. There were a fair number of kids, you know, getting cancer treatment, a fair number of kids who needed higher doses of steroids for asthma. And when they got chickenpox, they could die from it. So the vaccine was invented for relatively narrow reasons and used for a fairly long period of time for I've those narrow reasons. There was another um, high-risk population, women who had never seen chickenpox before who would get it in their first trimester. Right. During, during pregnancy, uh, uh, chickenpox can damage a fetus. It's uh, the, the estimated that if you get chickenpox during pregnancy, week 12 through 15, about 5% of women can have a, a damaged fetus. I mean, it's a pretty large number. One out of twenty. It's it be. I mean, first you have to be you have to be non-immune. Then you have to get chickenpox and so on. But it's it's there. But for years and years, the the drug company uh, came to our uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics conventions and they said we we can't afford to keep making this vaccine. It's got to be a universal universal vaccine. And they were laughed out of the convention. One of the the other heavyweight infectious disease doctors, a guy by the name of Brunel. Phil Brunel, who used to run the division of ID at uh, Cedars-Sinai, and who is now the editor of the Journal of Infectious Diseases, I think it's called. Philip Brunel laughed at them in print. They said, until you can show some real benefit to this vaccine uh, against this relatively benign childhood illness, you know, go away. I mean, he, 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 he was quoted numerous times. As just as telling this is a silly idea. And then somehow, late 80s, whenever it was, um, not only did, did, did Dr. Brunel flipped, and a lot of other big infectious disease doctors flipped. And they said, you know, it is true that the average American family loses 4.2 workdays and it costs 
billions of dollars, and uh, here's a they showed pictures of children with the worst chickenpox in the world, <laughs> and that vaccine became a universal vaccine in the United States, but in Europe and in many other parts of the world, that vaccine isn't given routinely, and the reason that it isn't given routinely is that chickenpox, as we all know, is a virus that you get, but and it, when you get rid of chickenpox, it still lives, simplistically speaking, in your nerve roots. It remains quiescent, dormant, um, being kept in check by a healthy immune system. Uh, as you get older, 50, 60, 70, 80, or if you get immunocompromised, uh, HIV, homeless, poor health, that that uh, vaccine can reactivate, go right down your nerve roots and cause shingles, which is a miserable reactivation of that same chickenpox virus. Well, that will happen. That's not just from the vaccine. No, That's... no, from the disease. Oh, okay. It can also happen from the vaccine, but right. but it happened from the, the, the disease. So in Europe, the, they made this calculation. They said, look, being exposed to kids with chickenpox keeps your antibody level up. Your kid gets chickenpox, your antibody level goes back up again, and your nephew gets chickenpox, and, and your children's six friends. So people went through their whole lives with a high level of antibodies against varicella. And the again, the calculation in Europe was that eliminating varicella from this end, from the young end of the life spectrum, created more problems for older people than it solved for younger people. Let kids get chicken pox and, and move on from an antibody level. It's, a, again, and a complicated discussion. And at a younger age. I got it last year at 38. It's a, it's a complicated healthy. discussion because I got it last year. the vaccine... It was not fun. And I, I, my, I was immunocompromised, yeah. I guess, because I was breastfeeding. It was very painful at the time. Got through it. but um, So I think that's kind You're of You're supposed to get chicken pox young. But, yeah. but uh, I got it younger. But it, it, it it's but the, and there's a, a full court press going on in Europe right now to get that vaccine approved in all countries in Europe or to make it an EU wide vaccine, but there's great resistance because they're saying, look, we, you know, w w the concern is 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 losing that exposure. So I for wish our, my for, nieces and nephews had had the but it, but it's not a simple discussion. It's, it's it's not a simple discussion because. You know, there's the, like any virus, when you have an outbreak of a virus, you're going to get complications. So, you know, I don't like chicken pox. And when people, you know, call me up and they got a two or three year old and they say, my friend's child has chicken pox. Should we go expose our child? I say, well, yeah, I'm supposed to tell you you should, but you know what? I just, I hate making kids sick on purpose. Okay. And, and certainly it's not, I'm on legally shaky grounds if I say, yes, go get chicken pox. <laughs> Uh, the, uh, so I, you know, I say, yeah. I, I said, I, I still pugs think it's probably a good idea, but eBay. Uh, yeah, right. I know. It's, the thing that kills in chickenpox is not the virus; it's the complications. It's the pneumonia. Right. And then, when I was a kid with chickenpox, we didn't have community-acquired strep infections, resistant strep infections that could, or, or staph infections that that could. Um, I mean, two hundred on average open pox all over your body. That's that's bad news. That's an invitation for really invasive and aggressive germs to just come on in. That didn't exist when you were a kid? It wasn't community acquired. It was mostly... No, but you know, another funny aspect, not so funny, another unusual aspect of what we do for a living antibiotics. is we created those bacteria. By antibiotics. You know, I mean, that's a... Well, overuse of antibiotics. Uh, yes, I'm sorry. Not yeah. yeah. We, Inappropriate I mean, use so of it's, antibiotics. So, so all of this is all just so interwoven. We, you know, I mean, we... In the food chain. But that's only, in, that's yeah. only in retrospect that it was an inappropriate use of antibiotics. Other no, than no. Uh, we knew back... No. We knew we would prescribe amoxicillin for every kid with a cold or penicillin. But, we knew it's still being done today. But you didn't know you I overprescribe mm -hmm. antibiotics every winter because I... I yeah, I I just do. I know. Oh, every, I have friends that sneeze and then go get a Z pack because they can't. Wow. I like to think and I do better that. than that. Some like of that is the consumerism of medicine. You know, patients come to me with a man-made deadline, like we're going to Disney World and now he's got a fever and we're leaving in forty-eight hours, or the bar mitzvahs this weekend and can't you just give him something? You know, it, it yeah. happens. What and we 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 give in. I mean, if you really were a great doctor and practicing great medicine, you wouldn't give in to any of those requests because it's wrong. Hepatitis A? 
at best, it's it's nausea, vomiting, fever, jaundice, or, or rather fever, abdominal pain, and at worst, jaundice, terrible, painful, um, jaundice, meaning the liver is failing temporarily. Um, clotting factors are made in the liver, so uh, that interrupts that production. Um, it's dangerous, probably not deadly, certainly inconvenient, uh, and it's viral, so an antibiotic won't help you if you get sick. So we just, just support you and keep you healthy? therapy, IV hydration, um, and support for whatever products the liver can't produce at that time. Unlike B and C, it's not permanent. I mean, B and C can become permanent liver infections. Hepatitis A is a, a transitory, unpleasant virus which uh, un- poorly treated certainly could cause complications, could, I would guess, lead to dehydration if, if you were really poorly treated, and I'm sure it happens in, in, in the developing world. How does yeah. it spread? Hmm? How does it spread? That's fecal oral. It's a guy who Dirty hands. <laughs> But you can get hepatitis A from from eating in a restaurant. It used to be, this vaccine, even in in the time that I started practicing until now, this vaccine has changed its stripes. It used to be only for um, travelers who were traveling to endemic areas, Far East, Middle East, Mexico sort of thing. And now... Um, we yep. give it to everybody because it's cheap, it works, and it cuts down on illness. And so it is has hepatitis very few... a, a lot less common now? I think it is. I mean, that it's 91% I've only seen it once decreased. in a child. That was a long time ago. It was right in my first couple of years of practice, 1980 or whatever it was. Um, and I, I, I know of adults, a couple of adults who got it while they were traveling through Europe and one of them ended up in, in a hospital in, in Italy on an IV for a couple of days, and that certainly uh, ruined their vacation. But, I, boy, I almost never see hepatitis A. On the other hand, it's one of the vaccines. I tell people, if you're going to be traveling extensively, your chances of getting hepatitis A are not great, but they're a lot greater uh, than they are in the United States. And that vaccine looks to me to be, as again, as harmless as a vaccine can be. I'll bet that if I did research, if I went to Medline, and I haven't done that, and I looked up hepatitis B adverse effects, hepatitis A, excuse me, adverse effects, I could find dozens of case reports of problems with that vaccine. But while those dozens of case reports were being generated, we gave hundreds of millions of cases of doses of that vaccine. It's relatively so, safe. Re- it's it's and, relatively uh, very safe. Uh, saves I've you gotten from... two of them myself. Yeah, uh, since its introduction, 91% decrease in the number of, of hepatitis A cases that we see. In, in the USA. Mm-hmm. We are going to take a quick commercial break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. <laughs> I have an incredible offer for you for my friends at Needed. An astounding 95% of women aren't meeting their omega-3 needs. Omega-3 fatty acids, especially DHA and EPA, are crucial for both mother and baby. They support brain and eye health, maternal mood, immunity, and much more. But it can be hard to get enough omega-3 from diet alone, especially during pregnancy when many people are averse to eating fish. And if you've ever taken a fish oil pill, you know just how unpleasant that can be. That's why I'm excited to share that my friends at Needed have revolutionized the omega-3 supplement with two different options designed specifically for mamas. An omega-3 powder that blends into smoothies and a pill option that tastes like fresh citrusy bergamot. Both are sustainably sourced from vegan algae, not fish. Both are great options for nausea and sensitive prone mamas. Needed's Omega-3 powder is delivered in liposomes, nature's very cool way of protecting and delivering omega-3 just like in breast milk. Needed's Omega-3 is clinically proven to be five times better absorbed than fish oil pills. The powder is mild tasting and it pairs great with Needed's prenatal multi-powder and collagen protein powder in a daily smoothie. If powder isn't your thing, Needed's got you covered with those Omega-3 Plus capsules, which have a pleasant citrus flavor. Needed is sharing in awesome pre-order discount just for my listeners buy two get one free on either omega-3 option powder or capsules you can stock up on either one or try them both with this exclusive discount use code three berlin the number three berlin at this is needed.com put three omega-3s in your cart use the code number three berlin at this is needed.com buy two get one free
Let's talk about HPV, yes. uh, the human papillomavirus. This vaccine got a bad rap because people think they can behave their way out of being exposed. And it's not necessarily true because kids don't have a good sense of what's safe. And there's only so much time in a well visit with a young teenager. And there's a lot to discuss and you can't necessarily get into the nitty gritty. And sometimes the parents just won't leave the room. When do you, when do you give the HPV? It is recommended anytime between nine and 26 years old. So to give a vaccine that protects against what is most commonly trans transmitted through very intimate naked contact or sexual contact at nine years old, that does put me off a bit. Mm -hmm. Having that discussion with the parents, I will say this vaccine is available for your nine-year-old. I don't know that we have to do it right this second, but it is available. Um, I will typically hold off and give this vaccine, and this is not... I, admittedly, this is not backed by scientific evidence. This is my own bias as a mother of daughters. When they get their periods and they no longer think boys are gross and they're getting a little curvier and it's a relevant conversation, I use this vaccine as sort of a jumping off point to discuss what's safe behavior, what's not safe behavior, and here's one more layer of protection. And uh, so it's, it's primarily sexually transmitted. Intimate contact. Intimate yeah. contact. And uh, what happens when you get it? HPV, the virus invades certain cells in the body and can help encourage them to become cancerous. Which uh, but, cells but just, but to but to But to be fair, when you get it, I don't remember the percentage, but isn't 90% of people, I mean, don't they just clear the virus like any other? Many. Because I, I really don't remember the number. I should, I should have the, the number. What do you mean by the um, By the age of 30. You're saying most people have been exposed by the age of 30. And have, but also clear it by the age of 30. In their 20s, those, it has the highest Does rate. that make you immune to Those statistics come from people who get regular pap smears. That's the only way to know. It's the people who aren't getting regular care or who don't know to, who are going unchecked, aren't getting pap smears. Or, you know, the, the screening for the other cancers, granted, numbers-wise, they're not as many, but other cancers that HPV can cause, head and neck cancers, rectal cancers, um, these penile cancers, there's no screening for those. So for for males at this point can't get screened for that and they are correct cannot they can get carry screened. it but they can, they are the they, only ones who can get yeah, penile they, cancer as a matter of fact but yeah they, interesting. but they can get they, they can get throat if they know to oh, it's the, not routinely dying are you saying throat cancer throat or throat screening I don't know head and neck, can head neck cancer you can get it's those viruses can cause can cause cancers it the, the again the the overstatement of the number of cancers caused isn't fair. Um, if I had my choice, if somebody said to me, you can either offer uh, HPV vaccination, manda mandatory HPV vaccination or mandatory pap smears, I don't think any doctor would disagree that it's pap smears. But is, is pap, I'm just confused because is, is pap smears is, is showing a cervical changes. Cervical only. It doesn't check. I mean, you cannot check for the others. They're not screened the way that pap, that, that cervical cancer is screened for. So, so Dr. Gordon, you're saying you, you if if you were only concerned about cervical cancer, if I were only concerned about health, if you're, only, if you're, no, I mean, I mean, I'm, but I'm saying if I, if somebody said we we got our choice, we can either mandate Pap smears at certain ages and at certain intervals, or we can mandate HPV vaccines. I'd say mandate Pap smears for heaven's sakes, even though that's that's a, that's an invasion of uh, that, that's that's personal not space. correct. Yeah, <laughs> is but, that because the other types of cancers are so rare? From they're, HPV? they're extreme. They're extremely rare. Uh, the HPV vaccine doesn't prevent all of them. But again, it's, you know, I would love to simplify this vac this discussion, but it can't be simplified because I think that each individual parent, and often in consultation with a 16-year-old girl or boy, or a 13-year-old girl or boy, maybe that conversation is, is, is not easily held, each individual parent should know the risks and benefits of the vaccine. The risks of that vaccine are grossly overstated. Um, there are high profile cases where somebody says that they had the, 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 the vaccine. There, there are reported 100 deaths from that vaccine. Mm. Now, I don't think that can be in any way proven. I don't think that, that, that's, that that's official data, but that number floats around. That's like that same, the, 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 the uh, people talk about, we've saved 42,000 lives this year from, because of vaccines. You, you made the number up. <laughs> 
You made the number up. I think they made up the number a hundred deaths from age. It's yeah. I th- I think that that vaccine, like any other medical intervention, can cause severe side effects. I think that it probably has. I think that it's it's such a complicated issue that it needs a discussion rather than people are being scared. You know, the hepatitis B vaccine was d- declared the first vaccine against cancer. Wow. Okay. The HPV vaccine is now declared the second vaccine against cancer. Uh, it's a vaccine to prevent warts, and yes, it, there are certain types of cancer it, it, it can make less common, but it hasn't been around long enough for us to really know that it's going to greatly diminish. It certainly isn't going to change the incidence of cervical cancer the way pap smears had, did, have, continue to. And my fear is, heaven help us, if we have a generation of kids who get a hepatitis B vaccine and an HPV vaccine and feel comfortable with unprotected sex. Well, that's the responsibility of the the teacher, the person who's talking to them about the vaccine. They do need to know that they are not entirely protected. Good protection, better but, than without the vaccine. But it's illogical to assume that teenagers will, no matter how good the teacher is. So that, does that mean that putting making condoms available to kids will also make them go ahead and have sex. Condom. No, but condoms are the answer. No, no, no. What I meant was that they hey, would but skip, that's the same they would skip the screen. No, no, no. I'm saying they would skip the screening. No, I think every step should be taken to yeah. to, to prevent the transmission of diseases. And that could, in, in, in many, if not most people's opinion, include the HPV vaccine. I, but, with, but, when I give birth worry, control pills and when I give the HPV vaccine, I caution these girls and young men that this is not 100%. You give the HPV to boys and girls? Yes. Are they both at equal risk? Good no, question. But you cannot get the girls clear of HPV unless you vaccinate everyone because that's where they're getting it from. So you're vaccinating the boys to protect the girls? And pr- to protect them from genital warts, penile cancers, rectal cancers, and head and neck cancers. But more likely to protect the girls. However, it, it does. The, it numbers are, the numbers are really, you know, the, the numbers were put together. Obviously, the, 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 the money is in, the drug manufacturer has the money to put out not only the, the promotion of the vaccine, but the research. So the numbers are questionable, but it's possible. You know, my problem with the HPV vaccine is that I was initially nothing but opposed to it. I still give it very, very sparingly. I mean, very, very sparingly. But I was initially 100% opposed to it. But if you do any kind of reading and you've got an open mind and you've got any kind of medical integrity, you realize that, yes, HPV transmitted can lead not just to cervical cancer but to head and neck cancer. How much? I don't know. I Honestly, I've read as much as I can read and I can't get the numbers right. I, I, I can't get numbers that make sense to me. All I know is that it, 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 that it, it is not the discussion that the promotion makes it out to be. Like every time you vaccinate a boy, you've, 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 you've saved a little girl's life or an angel gets its wings or something like that. Would you add the HPV vaccine to that same list that isn't very effective? Not at all. The new HPV vaccine that just came out this year, uh, the human papillomavirus, which is supposed to protect from the germs that cause cervical cancer, cancer um, head and neck cancers, rectal cancers, uh, that went from only having one... One brand name only has two, uh, a, a, a divalent vaccine, only two germs in it. And the one that we use in our office has four, but they don't even make it anymore. Now we started buying the one that has nine. And so HPV now the HPV, nine. actually, it prevents against 90% of cervical cancers and 90% of genital wars. It's really very good coverage. Okay. Well, why don't we end up our list with pneumococcal meningitis? No, meningococcal. Meningococcal meningitis. The pneumococcal we discussed with Prevnar. This is, there's a brand new vaccine for one of these. Very exciting. Um, this is a bacterial uh, illness that is rude. It is mean. It is fast, invasive, and um, can be fatal. Um, 15% of patients will have permanent damage. 20% will die from this. The first vaccine um, came out, in, not the first, but the, the current um, Minactra vaccine, again, product placement, sorry, I get no money from the <laughs> Minactra people, um, came out in 2005, and then a second dose was recommended come 2010. Um, the vaccine prior to this one was uh, Menimmune, and that, that only had like a couple years worth of protection. And so we would give it to kids when they first went off to college to live in a dorm. And then you would just hope that they moved into a private apartment by junior year. I don't know. It just really didn't keep. It didn't help after that. Um, 
So about half of the cases of meningitis are caused by the four serotypes, rather half of the the cases of meningococcal meningitis, this particular germ, are caused by the four serotypes called ACY and W135. And these are the ones that are contained in Menactra. So you're talking about 50% coverage. I can give you pretty good coverage against this really horrible illness that your, you know, 18-year-old who has done such a good job and made it to the honor roll going off to college to start his bright future, um, you would hate for him to be struck down. And especially these kids don't have their moms around. You know, they feel like they have the flu and they stay in bed and then 12 hours later, they're done for. So this moves fast and, and it's not always declarative at the beginning that it's going to be such a terrible illness. Um, so only recently this year, the new uh, vaccine for meningitis, this same germ, meningococcal meningitis, but the serotype B um, was introduced, and that pretty much covers the other 50% of what causes meningitis in college-age kids for the most part. So now very effective. Um, well, it is brand new. So post-marketing, we have yet to discover. They had an outbreak of uh, that particular type of meningococcal meningitis in Princeton right around mm-hmm. Thanksgiving. Was it last year or the year before? Uh, in uh, 13 I, or 14. Well, the one 14. at OSU in my neck of the woods was 2009, but yours, the, the, the one, one No, but I'm talking about the one of, uh, of uh, what's the new vaccine? It's B, right? B, B. meningitis B. Um, and there was no vaccine, and they had, I believe, a couple of fatal cases at Princeton right around Thanksgiving. And there was an experiment, there was a vaccine given in Europe uh, that they brought over here very hurriedly. And with all of these kids exposed to meningococcal meningitis at Princeton, and Thanksgiving coming up, and 7, 8, 10, 12, I don't remember how many cases, including a fatality or two. You know what they did? Quarantine the entire school? No. They sent the kids home for Thanksgiving, mm. which I thought was was the most medically disingenuous thing that anybody has ever done. I mean, this is a, this is a disease that every doctor respects. I've never seen, I haven't ever seen a case of meningococcal meningitis in private practice in 36 years, and I bet you haven't seen any either. I don't know that you would. They would go straight to the ER. That's how sick they reportedly look. Yeah, uh, you're, you're right. They probably end up in the ER, but I, I nonetheless, I you'd haven't. still know about it. Yeah. Uh, you'd know about it. Yes. Um, but they sent them home. They put them on airplanes with the possibility. So so we brought this vaccine over. Then it spread to UC Santa Barbara. This was Thanksgiving. I think it was Thanksgiving of 14. It must have been 14, 2014. Uh, uh, There were cases at UC Santa Barbara. There were other cases throughout the country. And they brought this new vaccine over. Now, the incidence of meningococcal meningitis in the general population, I think, is one out of 250,000. In college, it's estimated at one out of 50,000. Um, but, but when it hits, it's got the highest possible profile, a complication rate that's horrendous, fatality rate that's higher than, I believe, almost any other illness you can think of. So the same thing. I don't have a problem with the vaccine. I don't have a problem giving the vaccine to college kids. But if I could, if I had my choice between saying don't smoke cigarettes or get the meningococcal meningitis, I mean, we we allocate our healthcare resources both in times of the amount, the, both in terms of the amount of time we have to spend with these kids, and and the money that we spend, and we allocate it towards creating and and promoting a vaccine against an illness that almost nobody gets, and almost nobody got it before the vaccine. It's such an extraordinary vaccine. Interestingly enough, has been shown to cause a rise in antibody levels. I mean, I don't remember what the criterion is. It's something like a doubling or tripling of the antibody levels in your bloodstream, but it's never been shown to to prevent meningitis because the disease is too rare. Well, but that's also a difficult study to get people to sign up for. Study. Can you please get exposed to meningitis? It's an impossible so we can study. See if your I mean, <laughs> the only go. way we could do it is we could give <laughs> ten go, million, give ten million people a vaccine and ten million of placebo and follow yeah, them for two years. That is. So, it makes sense to me that it prevents meningococcal meningitis, but but the allocation of our resources against an illness that is so easy to promote but really so rare. You know, it's like trying to like promoting measles at Disneyland. If that outbreak had started anywhere else but Disneyland, it would have been a blip in the New York Times. A blip. It started at Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. 
Well, also a place where people come from all corners all, of the world. And somebody brought that illness. I don't know whether they brought it from the Philippines or they brought it from, I don't know where they where it came from. But, you know, I tell people, you go to Disneyland at Christmas time, you're going to get sick. If you're unbelievably unlucky, you're going to get measles. Uh, but at the very least, you're going to catch a cold at Disneyland at, at Christmas time. But, but I just, I wish we changed the way we, we, spent our resources well let's talk about i mean now that we've gone through the whole list am i right about that the, the routine, the routine list of, uh, you got them yeah. they're done Great. we're done with it and, and for the most part it seems like there's actually not that much disagreement about what the diseases are what the prevalence is how they look when you get them how nice it would be Nasty. to avoid them and uh, and also the vaccines themselves not really um at this point the vaccines that we use not really proven to be uh, all that harmful. But what seems a lot different uh, between you guys is perhaps how you discuss vaccines with your patients. Not as different as you might think. You have gone to a fair amount of trouble to get an extraordinarily <laughs> well-spoken advocate for conventional vaccination to sit here with us tonight. Yes. But if pressed, I would guess that you don't give all six vaccines to every two-month-old in your practice. Now, this can be edited, oh, and you might no. not want to. I mean, I no, what, what I'm saying is that you don't have to. What I'm saying is you don't have to touch that question, because as soon as you say, "Yeah, some people get them later, some people spread them out," you are a pariah, because you're someone on the air admitting that you. I, I, this is speaking of integrity. This doesn't go anywhere if you don't when you don't want it to. Um, but nobody talks about that. That all pediatricians, all pediatricians bend the rules. Schools bend the rules. They do. And it, it just it's 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 you know admit that. I mean, there are people whose webs people on the west side of L.A. whose websites and these are guys who get a lot more regard than I do. Um. As you admit, you know, we have a flexible vaccine schedule. Boom! You are immediately out of compliance with the CDC, the ACIP, and the AAP, and everybody else you can think of. My so. issue with condoning non-vaccination, one of many issues. So for children who are entirely unvaccinated, I do not believe I'm doing them any good. I don't believe that, number one, I'm conveying the risks and benefits adequately. Number two, I don't believe that the mothers who walk away and still want to refuse all vaccination have actually heard me. Number three, I don't believe that we can have a trusting bond. If they don't trust me about this, then when I say your child needs amoxicillin for 10 days, they'll take it for six days until the kid looks better and then stop. I don't believe that we are going to have a good solid, trusting relationship. It is fundamentally against everything that I believe in terms of an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure for me to say, it's okay for you to not vaccinate your child at all. That scares me. I don't believe that statement. And also for my children who come into my waiting room, my children, meaning my adopted children, my patients who come into my waiting room and the women, the mothers who have breast cancer, who are on chemotherapy and the grandmothers who bring the grandchildren and the women who don't even realize that they're pregnant yet for them to come into my waiting room, trusting that this is a safe environment. And the kid next to them is coughing up pertussis on their newborn. I can't, I, I cannot condone that. I can't, I don't feel comfortable. I couldn't sleep at night knowing that that's going on in my waiting room. Well, you you can have pertussis while you're fully vaccinated. We've covered that. Topic. Been there, done that. But what if you establish a relationship with someone? They come to the prenatal meeting with you, and they say, "I really don't want to give my child any vaccines." I'm I'm quite sure I don't want to give them any vaccines. And this is not a coin flipper. This was someone who has been exposed to nothing but Doctor Google. This is and a you tell deal them breaker for me. And you tell them exactly how you feel, and you spend an hour with them, as you do for a prenatal discussion, I would assume, like I do, and then you see them at the hospital and for a two-week checkup. And every time you see them, they grow to trust you more. They know that you give good advice. They know that you respect what they're saying, even though you disagree. And they get vaccinated because of you. I'll work with patients. I am not an all-or-none kind of person on any level. I will work with patients, but I, I cannot tolerate zero vaccines. 
you don't have to tolerate zero vaccines. What about you, that you woman who wouldn't? And her poor baby got sick. On my watch, her baby got rotavirus. And I have it documented up the wazoo in the chart that I urged her every visit. She's not going to get the vaccine if she leaves you. She's more likely to get the vaccine if you build a relationship with her. I don't know. Not if she's come to me with predetermined ideas. But she, but but people come with all sorts of predetermined notions. And in the They're time raise that it takes as, for me as, to break her down, how many other children am I putting at risk? None, quite frankly. I mean, a number that isn't a number that a number that isn't significant. Maybe you think it is. But what I'm saying is that if you build that relationship, if she if she leaves you. Let me tell you, she's going to seek out a doctor who, I don't know what he's doing. He could and be waving. Be happy. He could be. Right. They'll be more in line but with if each she, other. Right. But her child's not going to get vaccinated because that person's going to build that relationship based on, based on this, this agreement, based on this, this, this echo chamber. Whereas you have the chance because you got the facts. Okay. You have the facts to, to build a relationship and convince someone that even if they don't get all the vaccines, take a look at this one. And after you've gotten this one, let's discuss side effects and keep going. And that's what upsets me, is that I got patients who use car seats and household safety and they're breastfeeding and they'll comply with all these things. But, but they have been led to believe that vaccines are dangerous. Now, I think that, again, all medicine is in, has some dangers and so on. But let me sit and talk with you because I am completely accepting of people who give zero vaccines. Okay. I don't, I don't wave that flag. I don't advertise. And I, but I, and I also take every opportunity to tell them I've seen whooping cough. Okay. I don't like it. I've seen people who went into emergency rooms without tetanus immunity and a wound that was bad enough to scare the ER doc, and, and it, it, was, it was messy. I've seen people, you know, and so on. Now, I don't try to talk people into getting vaccinated, but I think that when people are presented with the facts by a doctor with whom they have a relationship, they are more likely to get vaccinated than if you eject them from your practice. But I also, obviously... Even though the American, this is at odds, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that you do not kick people out of their practice. That's an official policy. Don't kick them out. Work with them. But how do you reconcile working with them, one AAP point of view, with all vaccines have to be given at six weeks of age? It lets you know that the issue is so complex. But what bothers me is that doctors like you, I haven't known you for a long time, and we're not best friends. <laughs> but doctors, doctors like you, people who could, in fact, convince an anti-vaccine person that you should look harder, open your mind. Instead, these people never get a chance to get the facts. Instead, they hear somebody talk about the dreaded formaldehyde in vaccines, or, or, and that's There's, what they hear. Yeah. That's what they hear. What? I, I was assuming I knew what the next thing you were going to say was, and I had my rebuttal, but no. That's what, that, that's what they hear. So they leave you where they would have gotten a responsible point of view about health care. Again, everything from car seats to nutrition, to household safety, to vaccines, to bike helmets, to vaccines again. And they leave you and they go somewhere where, they, where someone's just going to give them a ditto at the end of their vaccines are the devil. They might. We are going to take a quick commercial break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. And I, might, you and, know what? And you've got that's your risk. choice because it's there's, exhausting. Yeah, but there there are lots of patients who don't come to me who already refuse vaccines. Am I, is it my responsibility to seek them out? Well, it's no, different if somebody their comes to you. Once you got them, you got them. It's different if somebody comes to you, but, but you know I don't what? Got them. If they come I'll to me and say patients, it's not going to happen, no, I it, read your reviews. You get five stars. Everybody <laughs> who sees you likes you. They respect the time you spend with them. And this is real personal, okay? And you can edit this if you want. They respect no, you. They like you. you. <laughs> but but that, so now you got a chance. You got a chance to talk to people who disagree with you. When you discuss with someone yes. that you know universal vaccination or something close to that, where the patient believes that that's infringing on their personal liberties, I feel like that step over that bound is the same as 
well, you should probably not eat that junk food and you should probably exercise a couple times a week and you should probably stop smoking and probably be very safe with the people that you are intimate with. How are those bits of advice any less invasive into someone's personal liberties? They're unequivocally good medical interventions. In other words, there, there is no bike helmet debate because there are no side effects from a bike helmet. The debate comes from the fact that the way we give vaccines um, does, the, the vaccines can, can create side effects. They, there's a small percentage of kids who, because they got vaccines, had something happen. This is acknowledged. It's nowhere near as high a percentage as they might say. It's not as low a percentage as they might say, but it's not an unequivocally uh, perfect medical intervention. Bike helmets are almost are perfect. I mean, how that's so. The, the, if someone says, "No, I'm, I, I, you're invading my space by telling me to have my child wear a bike helmet," leave my office, please, because you, that. But but if someone says, "You know, I really believe that vaccines should be given later and slower," and I really do, we really need a polio vaccine. The answer is no. You really don't need a polio vaccine. For public health reasons, maybe I could say you do. But does your child need a polio vaccine? No. Does your child need a, a DPT? I might say yes, your child does need a DPT. Because that's not necessarily just a public health intervention. Does your child need a, pneumo a Prevnar vaccine? Well, you know what? Uh, ear infections are not trivial, neither are sinus infections. And the possibility, the extraordinarily rare possibility of pneumococcal meningitis... Yeah, I'll recommend that vaccine. I'll back off on the polio vaccine because I'll bet, just like my patients, at a year or two or three years of age when they contemplate travel, they think, you know, I'd like a polio vaccine. And I say, well, where are you going? They say, India. I say, India was certified a polio-free nation by the World Health Organization in February 2014. They are now on their fifth year, fourth or fifth year in a row with no polio. You don't need a polio vaccine to India. And you can guarantee that everyone on that plane is polio-free. Not a chance. They all get the polio vaccine. I can present all the facts to them. I can say, you know, I, I don't know very many people who travel through India who are completely comfortable with no polio vaccination. But if you're asking me, do you have to have it for travel to India? No, you don't need it. Polio is not a plane ride away. Okay, polio is a two or three day viral illness confined at the present time to Pakistan and Afghanistan. It is, it, it, it's, it's not going anywhere. It's not leaving Pakistan and finding its way to San Francisco very easily. But it doesn't matter. Because a lot of vaccination is, is, again, very personal. Do you feel comfortable traveling with a, to Europe without a measles vaccine? Most people would say no, because they know there's been a lot more measles. There, there was fatality in Germany this year. Uh, so you're traveling to Europe. Your kid's three years old. You didn't want vaccines. You didn't want them to have that vaccine at 12 months of age. Is it safe at 36 months of age? Yeah, I think it is. And I think that takes us back to your quote about uh, community, doing it for your community versus the individual. Right. Just like you said, you don't want someone sneezing pertussis on the newborn, and hopefully there are sick rooms and new baby rooms and things like that to kind of separate those people. You don't perhaps want what's in a vaccine in your newborn. And so just as precious and new and fantastic as that and immunocompromised as that newborn is for the virus that they could get, you're also, you also can inject them or not with something. And so parents are weighing those risks. So I think there's a chronology to answer that question. It's not all six at one time necessarily. It can be all of them over an elongated period of time. And I think most parents will go for that. The bell curve of parents will. I did a lot of research and there were so many things that I wasn't excited about giving to my children, but I did because my husband's from France. We travel internationally a few times a year. So I did it. I'm one of my pediatrician's hippie, hippie parents, but I followed her advice and we talked about it and we, we, like, I bled through each one and cried, you know, even, but I did it because we had the conversations and because I looked online and those parents will look online and get scared because it is in Europe. It is in different places, places that we, a lot of people would consider safe until you do the research. So I think most people, uh, will the bell curve of people will will follow the advice um, even if they don't want to uh, originally? And you can be convinced by a trusted healthcare practitioner that listens instead of demonizes. I don't think you you do demonize, but I have felt as a parent that asks questions, demonize, and you for sure as a physician, you can so easily be the pariah that you talked about. Not you in, in general, but by even just mentioning a question, you can all of a sudden be put into this anti-vax category, and that's dangerous, I think. But your question houses information that 
evidence of your investigation. You say the product insert says this. You read the product insert. Mm-hmm. You didn't get your information from Dr. Oz or from Oprah or, or from Parenting Google. Magazine yes. or Dr. Google. Yeah. You, you many so many anti-vaxxers, though, are highly educated people. Most under-vaccinated children come from houses where the moms are white. They have an advanced education. They make over $75,000 a year. It's the, un, the those, my, I misspoke, those are the unvaccinated group. The under-vaccinated group are the single black moms who've been crossing state lines and who don't make a lot of money. They're the ones who don't have access. Well, those are people who are choosing not to vaccinate. They're just, they're lost. It's it's, it's like I said. the unvaccinated, the ones who opt against all vaccines tend to be in that higher echelon group. Well, I I don't, I, having had, again, a lot of experience with this and and having read probably what you've read, I can tell you that, that I've got a large number of people who just don't want to vaccinate according to schedule. They want to vaccinate. Some of them have said, we want our child to have every single vaccine, but they don't want six at a time. So do um, you th- advocate waiting until they're three, like Dr. Sears does? Because, I mean, even the the attorney general state, not the attorney general, surgeon general statement that you read earlier was saying that, you know, that's very dangerous. A lot of these vaccines, uh, like the Hib, for instance, are super duper dangerous the, to babies. I think the primary decision maker in is the parent. I mean, but the parent didn't go to medical school. The parent no, doesn't the have parent, nearly the fund of knowledge or the depth of understanding that you do. How can they be well, the they, final? They, but, but they do. They do. In other words, again, you don't have firsthand experience taking care of measles. I don't have firsthand experience taking care of measles. My firsthand experience taking care of meningitis is now 35 years old. Yours is, is, is 15 years old, and it involved a different patient population. So they can read the same things that we can read. They can integrate all the information. These are smart people that you and I take care of. They integrate all the information, and they say, look, I know what the pertussis vaccine does and doesn't do. And uh, I tell people in regard to the measles vaccine that I really do believe that there can be side effects. I believe that, that if we stopped giving that vaccine at 12 months of age, two things would happen. Firstly, we'd lose a lot of the coincidences, you know, where kids get the vaccine and the kid was headed towards a regressive neural developmental problem within hours, weeks, or uh, six weeks, and it's attributed to the vaccine. And the second thing we would lose would be the kids who are, in fact, fragile, and that triple live virus vaccine causes in them complications. No proof that that increases the incidence of autism. No proof that it causes autism and so on. But I think that, I mean, it's again, it's acknowledged. There's some kids who get a vaccine and have complications. If we gave that vaccine later, we would retain herd immunity. We'd retain more people under our, our wings. You know, so yes, I would rather give that vaccine later than earlier. I would rather give vaccines spread out rather than giving them all at once. I would rather individualize. I'd, I need to listen. If someone comes into your office, prenatal visit, and they say, you know, I, I need to discuss nutrition with you. I, my husband's father died at 47 after his third heart attack. His uncles barely made it to 50. He himself has been diagnosed with plaque, and he's 37 years old. Do you have any special nutritional advice for us? And the answer is, hell yes. Your kid's a, a vegan with a soccer ball tied to his ankle, okay? And yet someone comes into your office and they talk about autoimmune phenomena. Two nephews with autism, weird old Uncle Dave, uh, two cases of lupus and so on and so forth. It is acknowledged in the medical literature that there may be an increased incidence of type 1 diabetes. Not, I'm not talking about uh, Bart uh, Clausen's uh, articles about the hip and and uh, diabetes, but that there's that there are autoimmune phenomena which might be increased by vaccines. And they say, you know, we want to give vaccines, but we really would like to wait till six months of age. And the discussion, an honest discussion, would say you are putting your child at increased risk of whooping cough during those four months. Um, the rest of the illnesses, quite frankly, are is such low incidence illnesses that. I'm, you know, I, I don't need to talk about Hib and pneumococcus with you. Oh, you're putting your child at increased risk of pneumococcus. Um, if you are aware of that risk and you think that the vaccines given too early or given in large in in groups of six threaten your child, okay, I don't I don't argue with them. I don't present a different case. I actually agree with them with no scientific with skimpy scientific support, but I want to keep them. So what do I tell my eight partners 
when they are the ones on call, not me that night, and they get the phone call? Do they need to you say, gotta, who's you your pediatrician? you got a problem, you got a problem your... that I don't have because you are correct. Yeah. You're not going to get eight people to agree with that, and you're certainly right. not going to. You're gonna okay get... taking a phone call on a fever with a, a two-month-old with a fever I, who I'm, has no vaccines? Yeah, I've got, well, but we both know that the chances that that child has a virus as opposed to meningitis. I like my job. I want to keep my job. I'm I know not willing that, to bank on that. We both know. I don't know. Well, but you can tell. And if you have any doubts, I you bring that tell. child. I'm not you on bring, the phone with you them. Bring that child, if, you, with them. if you're worried about that child, even a child with complete vaccinations at four months of age and a fever, you bring that child in. That child's had a hip vaccine and a pre two hips and two Prevnars and two DTAPs. You bring that child, that febrile four-month-old into your office, and you actually, you probably meet them at the office at, night, at midnight if you have to, or find good or you know good after-hours care, because you don't sit on a four-month-old fully vaccinated kid with a fever who doesn't look good to its parents. So that argument, which I have heard many times before, I don't think is valid, because that's not how a good doctor practices. You've had all your shots. Give him some Tylenol, call me in the morning. It's a four-month-old with a 103-degree fever, not looking good to his parents. Uh-uh. Not buying it. And if you've got eight partners, who would do that? No, my Who's... partners are solid doctors. I'm right. not worried about right. that. Now, they would, be, they would be more concerned and angrier, perhaps, if that child had no vaccines, because now i got to go through a differential that I thought I had put to rest in 1988. I got to go through the differential with Hib, but you know, if you're if you are a well-read, intelligent doctor, you know that Hib meningitis is incredibly rare, as is pneumococcal meningitis. But you know, it could happen in a fully vaccinated kid, less likely. It could happen in an unvaccinated kid. You're going to see that kid. So I'm going to tell you, just on a personal note, you were talking about um, autoimmune disease. I have a nephew who is. I don't know if the word profoundly is accurate. He is autistic. Mm -hmm. He will not function on his own as an adult. He's a teenager now. This is my brother's son. Two of my own children, one has ADHD, one has autoimmune urticaria, and then another one has Crohn's disease, which is an autoimmune disease. They're fully vaccinated. I don't think in my heart of hearts, in my brain of brains, I don't have any inkling that their illnesses are at all related to vaccines. What kind of a mean son of a bitch would imply that? They <laughs> okay, who would imply that? Uh, do 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 you do you do? But but that's what it. You know, anybody who said when he hears about someone a child who has autism, he said, "Was he vaccinated?" What are you crazy? How about saying, "How can I help?" You know. But but what I'm saying is that if you have a family history of autoimmune issues, I really think that vaccines, given the way we give them, create a, a risk. A risk that's 2%, 11 I don't know. I'm not going to pull a number out of my ear. All I'm saying is that you are entitled to discuss vaccines because, boy, if you've got that family history as you have, and yours isn't even an awful family history. Yeah. It's not fun. But you're pretty well read. We, I would love for this conversation to go on forever, but I promised you both it wouldn't. And your you plane is about to pull away. Your plane's yeah, going to yeah, take yeah. off. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I would like to just finish with uh, one thing. Any resources that you recommend for vaccine research? Um, I like the CDC, the AAP. The, the CDC is the Centers for Disease Control. The American Academy of Pediatrics is the AAP, the ACIP, the Academy uh, for... What's the C for? American immunization. Committee of immunization, immunization Practices. practices. Um, those, of course, will be biased in one direction, obviously, but I bet you Dr. Gordon has some others. I have trouble, you know. I like the NVIC. I think that, 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 that they present a lot of information, but it's not unbiased information. And, and it's biased in the other direction. Yeah, it's, but, it, but it, it's, and, and, you know, I don't, I don't have a lot of great, I, I tell people, find a doctor you trust, talk to the doctor. Sounds like a great idea. And I also okay. tell them, and this is, I tell people. about Barbara Lowe Fisher, the NVIC? Yeah. So Barbara Lowe Fisher's a, a, a non-doctor who believes that her son was harmed through vaccination. Yes. And she started this group that she named the National Whatever It Is so that it sounded like it was a government institution. Um, 
but that that is certainly going to be biased in one direction. They're, oh, they're nothing but biased. That's why I said oh, okay. I'm not going to refer. I'm not going to refer. I'm not going to say if you want to know about but it's vaccines, a, but it's a read the org. NBIC. What it's I'm saying a dot is, org. and yet she makes a profit. <laughs> what I'm what I'm saying is that I, I don't have a, a good place to to send people for unbiased information. Right. They're pediatrician. And find a doctor you trust. Yeah. Find a doctor you trust. That's the read as much message. as you can. Thank you very much for listening to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting podcast. You can find out uh, information and resources from the things we talked about today at informedpregnancy.com on the show notes page for this vaccine. I would like to thank Dr. Gordon, Dr. Wilbur, and Maria for joining us today. And if you have any questions at all, feel free to write to info, I-N-F-O, at informedpregnancy.com. I got a whole